Hey, good morning, Littleton Christian Church. It's nice to see you all this morning, this first Sunday of Lent. And during the season of Lent, we will be studying a, uh, a pretty intense letter in the New Testament, uh, Paul's, perhaps Paul's fieriest letter, and that's the letter to the Galatians. So if you would turn, if you bring a Bible, if you would turn to Galatians, we give you all excuses not to bring Bibles by putting the words up here. Um, but either way, let's follow along. We're going to look at just the first 10 verses of Galatians today. From Paul, an apostle, not from men nor by human agency, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are following a different gospel. Not that there really is another gospel, but there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be condemned to hell. As we have said before, and now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be condemned to hell. Am I now trying to gain the approval of people or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, as we listen together, would you speak to us about your word? Father, the uh, opening of this letter has certainly got our attention, the dangers of a different gospel. And I pray, Lord, that as we study this letter for the next few weeks, that you would uh, sensitize us to the true gospel and to what it means in our lives, that you would assure us and establish us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Paul uh, never meant, apparently, to spend much time in Galatia. Galatia is a fairly large region. It's uh, present-day Turkey and Syria. In fact, uh, the area that Paul probably spent time is right now still digging out of rubble from the terrible earthquakes that have taken place there. So as we study Galatians, I, I would uh, encourage you to also think about the people who are living in that area now. In fact, we've got a map here. Um, this, is, this is what it looked like, you know, in Paul's day, roughly. Um, the, you know, on the bottom, if you're too far away to see the words, 
The big blue on the bottom is the water. <laughs> That's the Mediterranean Sea. So we're kind of, you know, on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And so there is the region of Galatia. It's quite large. And, uh, you know, I found myself as I was reading about Galatians, you know, there's all these debates about, was Paul writing to southern Galatia or northern Galatia? And they really get passionate about that. And and I don't know why it matters, but anyway. Um, but this is, you know, the, you see the line. This is where the person who made this map kind of has Paul traveling on his, uh, on his missionary journeys. But he says in this letter, in chapter 4, that I, I, that I remained with you because of an illness. He didn't mean to spend that much time with them, but he got sick and so there he was. It was because of a physical illness that I first proclaimed the gospel to you. And though my physical condition put you to the test, you did not despise or reject me. Instead, you welcomed me as though I were an angel of God, as though I were Christ Jesus himself. Wow, they had a really nice relationship at first, didn't they? I mean, Paul has really fond memories of his time there. Now, I don't know what you do with times of illness, how uh, you see those as an opportunity. For me, a time of illness is an opportunity to watch movies and stay in my sweatpants. Um, for Paul, uh, an illness like this was an opportunity to get to know the people of a region and, and follow, as he was able, his typical routine anywhere he stayed. He would find a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue. He would go in and, and, you know, be a traveling teacher. And he would announce that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Then he would explain what that means. And because of the way he explained what that means, he would quickly be thrown out or cast out of the synagogue. And he would find a few non-Jews that's when, whenever we refer to Gentiles, that's just people who aren't Jewish. The non-Jews who were in town who had, who had sort of taken to his message or shown some interest, and he would continue on with them. That's Paul's pattern anywhere he goes. And it seems like a group of Gentiles in, in these towns in Galatia, oh, the map's gone, but that's okay, in those towns that you saw, towns like Pisidian Antioch, became believers and started churches throughout their region. This letter, of course, came a while later. Paul's moved on, and then he's heard rumors about what's going on in these towns. He receives word that these churches are, are very proud to have progressed past the news that Paul gave them. We will get hints of a group of teachers who were bent on discrediting Paul and presenting a different version of the news about Jesus. Now, whatever those differences are, we'll get some hints throughout the letter, and we'll discuss those when the time comes. To Paul's mind, those differences rendered the true gospel unrecognizable, and they left people outside of the life-giving grace of Jesus. It's a serious deal 
for Paul. So why are we studying Galatians? Why do Galatians uh, now? We, we did Romans not too long ago, and, and Galatians and Romans are actually pretty similar in their messaging. He's less angry at the Romans. He's a little bit friendlier. Um, so, you know, maybe we just wanted angry Paul for a while. You know, that, that's a good Lenten practice, spend time with someone who's grumpy. <clears throat> well, uh, for the last seven weeks, we studied a set of psalms, and we did that to obey one part of Jesus's final command, the, what, what we call the Great Commission, and that's at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And the last command of the Great Commission, the last part is, remember that I'm with you always. So we spent seven weeks in the psalms learning some practices that could help us remember that he is with us always. Another part of the Great Commission, uh, if you kind of break it up into four parts, it's, it's go make disciples, that's the first part. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the second part. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you is the third part. Remember, I'm with you always. All year, we're going to be thinking about those four parts of the Great Commission. And as we look at, at Galatians, this is, this is going to feel like kind of a stretch, but we are going to be focusing on that second command, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to be talking much about actual baptism, so why would I connect it to that? Because for the early church, baptism was the way you got in. That's how you entered into the community. That's how you became part of the family. If before you were baptized, you were on the outside. Afterwards, you were on the inside. Over the years, I have uh, used the image of a moat around a castle. You have to cross the moat to be in the castle. Baptism is how you get in. And the question that is so important in Galatians is, how do you know you're in? How do you know you're in? It's, it's a passionate discussion of this question. Now, Paul starts the letter by talking about how he got in. He didn't want to be in. He hated the in people. In fact, he thought they were out. He thought the people who believed in Jesus and were following Jesus were heretics and they were ruining Judaism. And so he was on a mission as a Jewish teacher to arrest them and execute them. And he got in when the risen Jesus came to Paul directly, knocked him off his donkey, blinded him, and called him to a new life of following him. Paul could not deny this experience, and it changed everything for him. So he opens the letter with, look, <clears throat> I, I didn't get in because some people thought I was really qualified, and, you know, they recruited me in. I got in because Jesus came himself to me. That's how Paul got in, and that affects the way he sees everything else. At the very beginning here in, in this letter, after he introduces himself and says how he got in, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel that I proclaimed to you. I'm astonished. In all the rest of Paul's letters, 
He starts with a greeting. Hey, this is from Paul. I'm writing to you guys, you know, in, in Philippi. You know, Paul, I'm, I was called by Jesus. You're beloved of Christ. Um, and, and then the next thing he says in every other letter is, I just, I just thank God for you. I thank God for your faith. I thank God for, for the fruit that that faith is having in your lives. I thank God for the relationship that we have with each other, things along those lines. Even letters where he needs to, um, you know, to bring a spanking to them. He, in all the other letters, he starts with, with some nice stuff. You know, he, he gives them a hug first. Not Galatians. No way. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting. And this idea of so quickly deserting, it, it caught me this week. Like, why are they so quickly deserting? Why are they leaving so fast? Well, there's a group of teachers who have followed Paul. Like I said, we're going to look at them more and more in coming weeks. But it seems that they've come to these towns in Galatia, to these churches, and they've said, hey, there is a way to ensure that you're in. There's a way to be absolutely sure. If you do these things, you can be sure that you're in. And being sure that you're in is what our hearts long for. It's what our hearts long for. In fact, I just thought of this. My friend Brandon, sitting in the back row, often uses the idea of loneliness. Like, we live a lot of our lives feeling lonely, feeling like we're on the outside, and we want to know there's someone that we're with. These guys are so quickly deserting the gospel because the gospel, it doesn't quite make sense to us. It doesn't give us a way to be sure that we're in. Paul's message is that Christ came for sinners who were dead in their transgressions, hopelessly bound, and he liberates us. But our hearts can't quite accept that. Surely, surely we can contribute something to be sure that we're in. Somehow, we can show ourselves to be worthy recipients of this gift. I've been learning that both in the, in the Greek world and in the Jewish world in the first century, there was actually extensive literature from the philosophers and the thought leaders about how and when to give gifts. How and when to give gifts. And the, the common logic of the day whether from Aristotle, who's a Greek philosopher, probably you've heard of him, or Philo of Alexandria, who's a, a prominent Jewish philosopher, either one had these uh, extensive instructions about how to decide if someone was worthy of a gift. And the word for gift is the same word that Paul uses for grace. It's, it's the name of my second daughter, Charis. That's the word for gift. And, and you had to decide if somebody was worthy of a gift before you gave it. Because if, if you gave a gift to someone who's just going to waste it, well, that's just you being foolish, right? And you could see how that would then apply to these, these new believers. They're like, well, we want to prove that we are worthy of the gift. We want to show that there's a reason that God chose us. And I think we still want that. 
It's the same desire as the desire to be in. I, I think that several of you in this room, maybe most of you in this room, are haunted by the nagging thought that you don't deserve the grace that's been given to you. That maybe you haven't actually really received it. That maybe you're fooling yourself that you are in. You're all too aware of, you know, at your best, your partial obedience. You're even more aware, aware of your continued disobedience. You wonder if you're fooling yourself that you're a Christian, that God loves you. It is so wonderful when someone comes along and gives you a way to prove to yourself that you're in. It's so wonderful. This is a common human experience. When I think back on middle school and, you know, early high school especially, I don't like those years of my life. They They were awkward years. My, you know... My body was not growing, different parts of me were growing at different paces of other parts of me, you know, and I, every time I turned around, I knocked over a shelf, you know, acne, braces, you know, cracking voice. Um, I couldn't get the, you know, the group that I wanted to be in with didn't like me because I couldn't catch a pass or make a layup and, and um, you know, the girls that I wanted to like me didn't notice me. You, This is middle school for everyone, right? I hope so. That's such a human thing we want to be in. And and it's also such a human thing to not notice who you're in with, but to see who you're not in with and immediately feel outside of them. In any new setting, that, that continues to happen. In my 20s, I went through a motorcycle phase. Uh, I'm not cool. I just went through that phase. Um, like every hobby, uh, motorcycles has a whole culture around it and, and expensive clothing and swag that you're supposed to buy. Um, so, you know, in hopes of not dying, I bought a fancy helmet to go with my, you know, my helmet cost like a quarter of what my bike cost. I've got a $500 bike and a $150 helmet. <laughs> <coughs> And frankly, I feel good about the, those numbers. But um, so my, my buddy who had kind of gotten me into motorcycling, he invites me to a group ride. And I show up with my bike, you know, this kind of little slow bike and, and my brand new helmet. And I, I immediately realize, I didn't know this, that I had bought the nerdy style of helmet. You know, apparently the one with the face shield that you can flip all the way up in that group wasn't cool. And I immediately felt like, oh, I'm that guy. Again, I'm that guy. All these guys used bike lingo that I didn't know. They, 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 they operated their bikes in a way that I didn't know how to operate mine. And so my buddy, who seemed to be kind of the social leader of the group, I just clung to him and tried to emulate everything that he did. I, when I was with them, I talked the way he talked. I stayed close to him. You know, I, I, I memorized the ways he talked about motorcycles. I didn't buy myself a new helmet because I, I couldn't afford it. But anyway, the best way we can find to feel like we're in 
is to find the leader or the expert, the person that we think is the cool kid or the whatever, and feel like we're fitting in at least with them. Paul is astonished that they're so quickly deserting. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, if we or even an angel come and give you a different gospel, what he's saying is there have been these these appealing people who are giving a different version of the gospel. There's a a renowned Scottish New Testament scholar named F.F. Bruce. And he explains it like this. He says, the gospel preached by Paul is not the true gospel because it is Paul who preaches it. It is the true gospel because the risen Christ gave it to Paul to preach. He's saying the message matters more than the messenger. And, And of course, in this moment, we all agree with that. But guys, in the rest of your life, you don't. And neither do I. Of course, it makes sense. Oh, yes, if that's true, it doesn't matter who says it. But but life in this world is big and complicated, and we put a lot of stock in who the messenger is. Does this person seem to know what they're talking about? Do they have good references? Is their life commendable? Is their presentation appealing and convincing? Just a minute ago, how did I introduce that quote from F.F. Bruce? The renowned Scottish New Testament scholar. Right? I could have just said, hey, there's this Scotsman named Fred. And he says this. And you would have thought, okay. (laughs) Was he drunk? That wasn't a Scottish racist thing, I hope. I'm sorry. I didn't. Uh, Nope. All right. It's my birthday. Give me a pass on that one. So Paul's message in Galatians is the true way in is the gospel we preached to you. In fact, he says it twice in these 10 verses. If anyone preaches a different gospel than the one we preached to you. So the obvious question is, what's the one you preached to them? What's the one you you preached? Well, thankfully... The book of Acts tells us the story of Paul's first visit to Pisidian Antioch, which is in southern Galatia. So I guess I'm with those scholars. And I want to read to you this story. It's a little bit long. It's from Acts chapter 13. Basically, the heart of this sermon is just Paul's sermon, all right? So if you forget the rest of what I said, I'm going to give you the Paul's sermon. This is the gospel that Paul preached to them. All right, so here it is in Acts 13. I'll start a little bit before Paul's message. It says, moving on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent them a message saying, Brothers, if you have any message of exhortation for the people, speak it. So Paul stood up, gestured with his hand, and said, Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our ancestors and made the people great during their stay as foreigners in the country of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. 
after he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan and gave his people their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing him, God raised up David, their king. He testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my heart, who will accomplish everything I want him to do. From the descendants of this man, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. Before Jesus arrived, John had proclaimed a baptism for repentance to all the people of Israel. But while John was completing his mission, he said repeatedly, Who do you think I am? I'm not he, but look, one is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. Brothers, descendants of Abraham's family and those Gentiles among you who fear God, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. For the people who live in Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, and they fulfilled the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath by condemning him. Though they found no basis for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had accomplished everything that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had accompanied him from Galilee to Jerusalem. These are now his witnesses to the people. <clears throat> and we proclaim to you the good news about the promise to our ancestors, that this promise God has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have fathered you. But regarding the fact that he has raised Jesus from the dead, never again to be in a state of decay. God has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and trustworthy promises made to David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not permit your holy one to experience decay. For David, after he had served God's purposes in his own generation, died, was buried with his ancestors, and experienced decay. But the one whom God raised up did not experience decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this one, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by this one, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which the law of Moses could not justify you. Watch out then that what is spoken about by the prophets does not happen to you. The prophets say, look, you scoffers, be amazed and perish, for I am doing a work in your days a work that you would never believe, even if someone tells you. Okay, that's the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them. Let me summarize it for you. I know there was a lot there. He tells the history of the Jewish people in order to bring it down to the story of David, in order to bring it down to the promises made to David. And then he says, but David died. And his ancestor, many generations later, or his descendant many generations later, Jesus, is the promised one. And Jesus, even though he was crucified and died, he resurrected and he does not experience decay anymore. Here's the beginning of the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them. Jesus is the one that Jews were waiting for. 
That's the announcement. Jesus is the king that the Jews were waiting for. But there's a second part in this. He says, anyone who believes in him experiences forgiveness of sins and justification. In fact, it's a justification that couldn't be provided by the law of Moses. So two key points of Paul's gospel. Jesus is the Davidic Messiah who through his death and resurrection is Lord of all. That's part one. And two, all who believe in him receive forgiveness of sins and justification. That is, they have a standing before God that was simply impossible through the law of Moses. That's the gospel Paul proclaimed to them. And he says, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. Let them be condemned to hell. Well, here's what he really says. He says, these different ways in, these different gospels, they don't actually exist. There's not actually another way in. But all of them have one thing in common. To be truly in, you must do the following. You must do this. Our hearts long for that. To feel in with someone. And every group of people, including this one, has little unspoken ways that we make ourselves feel in. And there are people in this room who have other people you're aware of in this room that you feel kind of on the outside of. Maybe you're a different age of them or different stage or, or whatever. You know, you, you haven't had as many dinners together as you think those people are having together. There's ways that we feel in and out. There's, there's ways that we all kind of act and dress. You know, very few of us, other than Elder Chuck, wear our coat jacket, or, you know, every Sunday. But in other churches, he would fit right in. This happens in every group. Our hearts long to justify themselves. Why do we have to be totally dependent on God for getting in? Why can't we have a way to set ourselves aside to feel like there's some proof that we're in? A different gospel may still say that Jesus is Lord, but it will eventually deny the implications of Jesus' lordship. If you mess with either part of Paul's gospel, that, that Jesus is Lord and that he offers forgiveness and justification to all who believe, it becomes a different gospel. Whether you add to it or take away from it, it's a different gospel. But condemned to hell for doing that? My goodness, he says it twice. He really believes it. If someone preaches a different gospel, the Greek word is a, a word that we use a lot, anathema. Well, some of, does anyone use that word a lot? Anathema. <laughs> well, at seminary, they use that word a lot. <laughs> and that's how you get in. <clears throat> anathema. It means devoted to God's judgment with no hope of redemption. That's strong language. But if someone teaches others in that way, they are causing, in Jesus' words, little ones to stumble. Jesus says that's bad. (laughs) It would be better if you tied a heavy rock around your neck and threw it in the ocean and drowned yourself. That's, you know, Jesus' words. These people are offering the forbidden fruit again. 
You know why Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit? Because everything else was a free gift and they could do nothing to feel like they were equal with God. If they eat this, they have the knowledge of good and evil. They are equal with him. They, they feel in that moment because of the serpent on the outside of God. And they want to get in. They want to be equal with the leader. <clears throat> to finish the, the opening of his letter, Paul applies the whole question of getting in to himself. He says, look, I'm not trying to convince God of anything. You're the one who needs convincing. That's how, that's how it starts. Am I trying to gain, you know, the, am I trying to, to change the opinions of people or of God? Now, a lot of people read that as, you know, surely Paul's just, his, his audience is God. But he's not trying to convince God. He's trying to convince people. You're the ones who need convincing. And then he says, but I'm not concerned about being in with anyone except God. Who am I trying to please, he says. Am I trying to please people or am I trying to please God? What Paul is saying is if I have to, I will stand against you on the outside of you in order to help you see the mistake you're making. That's a scary place to stand. And when someone does that in your life for your sake, they really love you. Paul really loves the Galatians. They can never be free from the present evil age the one that was initiated by Adam and Eve when they sought self-justification. They can never be free from that except by the kingdom of Jesus and his forgiveness and justification. It's Jesus who gets us in. And here's what that means for us. We can't have extra ways to be in. We can't find ways, church, for there to be another in crowd inside of the in crowd. In, in, in fact, if this is true, if this is true, the best thing that happens here is when we join together united with people that we feel really different from. That reminds us that, that Jesus did all the work to get that person in just like to get you in. We can create no rankings. Jesus is our ranking. That's the beauty of the one table. We have this one little table with a tiny, wonderful feast laid out on it. It's just one plate, but it's enough for all of us. Right here, there is only one way you deserve to sit around this table. By what he's done by his invitation to you. To go back to the loneliness thing, this at its best is the moment we're to feel the least lonely in all of our lives. This is the feast of the king and you're invited to the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, cast out from the in crowd he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it he broke it and said this is my body which is given for you 
Do this in in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's a new covenant? That's a way to be in with Jesus. That's a way into relationship with him, his blood, not yours. He did it all. So brothers and sisters, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, his work to get us in until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We are amazed and grateful at your mercy toward us. And yet, Lord, I constantly, constantly feel the need to get further in, to rank myself better, to feel like I'm doing it better. And I confess that prideful, competitive longing in me. That longing that at one moment leads to pride and arrogance and at another moment leads to shame and loneliness and isolation. Have mercy, God. Have mercy. So Lord, we hear Paul's strong warning and I pray, Lord, that for the next five weeks, you would show us all of the extra things that we have attached to make us feel like we're in and that you would tear them away, Lord tear them away. And so, Lord, in this moment as we come to the table, any of those that we're aware of, we drop on the floor and we walk up empty-handed. In Jesus' name, amen.